Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we are continuing with post-scarcity anarchism and we will be finishing up our chapter on technology, both the good and the bad of it. So let's jump right in. Technology for life. In a future revolution, the most pressing task of technology will be to produce a surfeit of goods with a minimum of toil. The immediate purpose of this task will be to open the social arena permanently to the revolutionary people, to keep the revolution in permanence. Thus far, every social revolution has floundered because the peal of the toxin could not be heard over the din of the workshop. Dreams of freedom and plenty were polluted by the mundane, workaday responsibility of producing the means of survival. Looking back at the brute facts of history, we find that as long as revolution meant continual sacrifice and denial for the people, the reins of power fell into the hands of the political professionals, the mediocrities of Thermidor. How well the liberal Girondins of the French Convention understood this reality can be judged by their effort to reduce the revolutionary fervour of the Parisian popular assemblies, the great sections of 1793, by decreeing that the meetings should close at 10 in the evening, or as Carlyle tells us, before the working people come from their jobs. Citation 24. The decree proved ineffective, but it was well-aimed. Essentially, the tragedy of past revolutions has been that, sooner or later, their doors closed at 10 in the evening. The most critical function of modern technology must be to keep the doors of the revolution open forever. Nearly a half-century ago, while social democratic and communist theoreticians babbled about a society with work for all, the Dadaists, those magnificent madmen, demanded unemployment for everybody. The decades have detracted nothing from the significance of this demand, and they have added to its content. From the moment toil is reduced to the barest possible minimum, or disappears entirely, the problems of survival pass into the problems of life and technology itself passes from being the servant of man's immediate needs to being the partner of his creativity. Let us look at this matter closely. Much has been written about technology as an extension of man. The phrase is misleading if it is meant to apply to technology as a whole. It has validity primarily for the traditional handicraft shop, and, perhaps, for the early stages of machine development. The craftsman dominates his tool. His labour, artistic inclinations and personality are the sovereign factors in the productive process. Labour is not merely an expenditure of energy. It is also the personalised work of a man whose activities are sensuously directed through preparing his product, fashioning it and finally decorating it for human use. The craftsman guides the tool, not the tool the craftsman. Whatever alienation may exist between the craftsman and his product is immediately overcome, as Friedrich Wilhelmsen emphasized, quote, by an artistic judgment, a judgment bearing on a thing to be made. End quote. Citation 25. 
The tool amplifies the powers of the craftsman as a human. It amplifies his power to exercise his artistry and impart his identity as a creative being to raw materials. The development of the machine tends to rupture the intimate relationship between man and the means of production. It assimilates the worker to preset industrial tasks, tasks over which he exercises no control. The machine now appears as an alien force, apart from, and yet wedded to, the production of the means of survival. Although initially an extension of man, technology is transformed into a force above man, orchestrating his life according to a score contrived by an industrial bureaucracy. Not men, I repeat, but a bureaucracy, a social machine. With the arrival of mass production as the predominant mode of production, man became an extension of the machine, and not only of mechanical devices in the productive process, but also of social devices in the social process. When he becomes an extension of a machine, man ceases to exist for his own sake. Society is ruled by the harsh maxim, quote, production for the sake of production, end quote. The decline from craftsman to worker, from an active to an increasingly passive personality, is completed by man qua consumer, an economic entity whose tastes, values, thoughts, and sensibilities are engineered by bureaucratic teams in think tanks. Man, standardized by machines, is reduced to a machine. Man the machine is the bureaucratic ideal. Footnote 29. It is an ideal that is continually defied by the rebirth of life, by the appearance of the young, and by the contradictions that unsettle the bureaucracy. Every generation has to be assimilated again, and each time with explosive resistance. The bureaucracy, in turn, never lives up to its own technical ideal. Congested with mediocrities, it errs continually. Its judgment lags behind new situations, insensate, it suffers from social inertia, and is always buffeted by chance. Any crack that opens in the social machine is widened by the forces of life. How can we heal the fracture that separates living men from dead machines without sacrificing either men or machines? How can we transform a technology for survival into a technology for life? To answer any of these questions with Olympian assurance would be idiotic. The future liberated men will choose from a large variety of mutually exclusive or combinable work styles, all of which will be based on unforeseeable technological innovations. Or these humans of the future may simply choose to step over the body of technology. They may submerge the cybernated machine in a technological underworld divorcing it entirely from social life, the community, and creativity. All but hidden from society, the machines would work for man. Free communities would stand at the end of a cybernated assembly line with baskets to cart the goods home. Industry, like the autonomic nervous system, would work on its own, subject to the repairs that our own bodies require in occasional bouts of illness. The fracture separating man from machine would not be healed, it would simply be ignored. 
Ignoring technology, of course, is no solution. Man would be closing off a vital human experience, the stimulus of productive activity, the stimulus of the machine. Technology can play a vital role in forming the personality of man. Every art, as Lewis Mumford has argued, has its technical side, requiring the self-mobilization of spontaneity into expressed order and providing contact with the objective world during the most ecstatic moments of experience. A liberated society, I believe, will not want to negate technology precisely because it is liberated and can strike a balance. It may well want to assimilate the machine to artistic craftsmanship. By this I mean the machine will remove the toil from the productive process, leaving its artistic completion to man. The machine, in effect, will participate in human creativity. There is no reason why automatic, cybernated machinery cannot be used so that the finishing of products, especially those destined for personal use, is left to the community. The machine can absorb the toil involved in mining, smelting, transporting, and shaping raw materials, leaving the final stages of artistry and craftsmanship to the individual. Most of the stones that make up a medieval cathedral were carefully squared and standardized to facilitate their laying and bonding, a thankless, repetitive, and boring task that can now be done rapidly and effortlessly by modern machines. Once the stone blocks were set in place, the craftsmen made their appearance. Toil was replaced by industrial machines, and the craftsmen's tools could reach a degree of sophistication and of creative interdependence unparalleled in any period in human history. William Morris's vision of a return to craftsmanship would be freed of its nostalgic nuances. We could truly speak of a qualitatively new advance in technics, a technology for life. Having acquired a vitalizing respect for the natural environment and its resources, the free decentralized community would give a new interpretation to the word need. Marx's realm of necessity, instead of expanding indefinitely, would tend to contract. Needs would be humanized and scaled by a higher valuation of life and creativity. Quality and artistry would supplant the current emphasis on quantity and standardization. Durability would replace the current emphasis on expendability. An economy of cherished things, sanctified by a sense of tradition and by a sense of wonder for the personality and artistry of dead generations, would replace the mindless, seasonal restyling of commodities. Innovations would be made with a sensitivity for the natural inclinations of man as distinguished from the engineered pollution of taste by the mass media. Conservation would replace waste in all things. Freed of bureaucratic manipulation, men would rediscover the beauty of a simpler, uncluttered material life. Clothing, diet, furnishings, and homes would become more artistic, more personalized, and more Spartan. Man would recover a sense of the things that are for man, as against the things that have been imposed upon man. 
the repulsive ritual of bargaining and hoarding would be replaced by the sensitive acts of making and giving. Things would cease to be the crutches for an impoverished ego and the mediators between aborted personalities. They would become the products of rounded, creative individuals and the gifts of integrated, developing selves. A technology for life could play the vital role of integrating one community with another, rescaled to a revival of crafts and a new conception of material needs. Technology could also function as the sinews of confederation. A national division of labor and industrial centralization are dangerous because technology begins to transcend the human scale. It becomes increasingly incomprehensible and lends itself to bureaucratic manipulation, to the extent that a shift away from community control occurs in real material terms, technologically and economically. Centralized institutions acquire real power over the lives of men and threaten to become sources of coercion. A technology for life must be based on the community. It must be tailored to the community and the regional level. On this level, however, the sharing of factories and resources could actually promote solidarity between community groups. It could serve to confederate them on the basis not only of common spiritual and cultural interests, but also of common material needs. Depending upon the resources and uniqueness of regions, a rational, humanistic balance could be struck between autarky, industrial confederation, and a national division of labor. Is society so complex that an advanced industrial civilization stands in contradiction to a decentralized technology for life? My answer to this question is a categorical no. Much of the social complexity of our time originates in the paperwork, administration, manipulation, and constant wastefulness of capitalist enterprise. The petty bourgeois stands in awe of the bourgeois filing system. The rows of cabinets filled with invoices, accounting books, insurance records, tax forms, and the inevitable dossiers. He is spellbound by the expertise of industrial managers, engineers, stylemongers, financial manipulators, and the architects of market consent. He is totally mystified by the state, the police, courts, jails, federal offices, secretariats, the whole stinking sick body of coercion, control, and domination. Modern society is incredibly complex, complex even beyond human comprehension. If we grant its premises, property, production for the sake of production, competition, capital accumulation, exploitation, finance, centralization, coercion, bureaucracy, and the domination of man by man, linked to every one of these premises are the institutions that actualize it offices, millions of personnel, forms, immense tons of paper, desks, typewriters, telephones, and, of course, rows upon rows of filing cabinets. As in Kafka's novels, these things are real but strangely dreamlike, indefinable shadows on the social landscape. The economy has a greater reality to it and is easily mastered by the mind and senses but it too is highly intricate. 
If we grant that buttons must be styled in a thousand different forms, textiles varied endlessly in kind and pattern to create the illusion of innovation and novelty, bathrooms filled to overflowing with a dazzling variety of pharmaceuticals and lotions, and kitchens cluttered with an endless number of imbecile appliances. If we single out this odious garbage, one or two goods of high quality in the more useful categories, and if we eliminate the money economy, the state power, the credit system, the paperwork and the police required to hold society in an enforced state of want, insecurity and domination, society would not only become reasonably human, but also fairly simple. I do not wish to belittle the fact that behind a single yard of high-quality electric wiring lies a copper mine, the machinery needed to operate it, a plant for producing insulating material, a copper smelting and shaping complex, a transportation system for distributing the wiring, and behind each of these complexes other mines, plants, machine shops, and so forth. Copper mines, certainly of a kind that can be exploited by existing machinery, are not to be found everywhere, although enough copper and other useful metals can be recovered as scrap from the debris of our present society to provide future generations with all they need. But let us grant that copper will fall within the sizable category of material that can be furnished only by a nationwide system of distribution. In what sense need there be a division of labour in the current sense of the term? There need be none at all. First, copper can be distributed, together with other goods, among free autonomous communities, be they those that mine it or those that require it. This distribution system need not require the mediation of centralised bureaucratic institutions. Second, and perhaps more significant, a community that lives in a region with ample copper resources would not be a mere mining community. Copper mining would be one of the many economic activities in which it was engaged, a part of a larger, rounded, organic economic arena. The same would hold for communities whose climate was most suitable for growing specialised foods, or whose resources were rare and uniquely valuable to society as a whole. Every community would approximate local or regional autarky. It would seek to achieve wholeness, because wholeness produces complete, rounded men who live in symbiotic relationship with their environment. Even if a substantial portion of the economy fell within the sphere of a national division of labour, the overall economic weight of society would still rest with the community. If there is no distortion of communities, there will be no sacrifice of any portion of humanity to the interests of humanity as a whole. A basic sense of decency, sympathy and mutual aid lies at the core of human behaviour. Even in this lousy bourgeois society, we do not find it unusual that adults will rescue children from danger, although the act may imperil their lives. We do not find it strange that miners, for example, will risk death to save their fellow workers in cave-ins, or that soldiers will crawl under heavy fire to carry a wounded comrade to safety. What tends to shock us are those occasions when aid is refused, 
when the cries of a girl who has been stabbed and is being murdered are ignored in a middle-class neighborhood. Yet there is nothing in this society that would seem to warrant a molecule of solidarity. What solidarity we do find exists despite the society, against all its realities, as an unending struggle between the innate decency of man and the innate indecency of society. Can we imagine how men would behave if this decency could find full release, if society earned the respect, even the love, of the individual? We are still the offspring of a violent, blood-soaked, ignoble history, the end products of man's domination of man. We may never end this condition of domination. The future may bring us and our shoddy civilization down in a Wagnerian Güterdammerung, how idiotic it would all be. But we may also end the domination of man by man. We may finally succeed in breaking the chain to the past and gain a humanistic, anarchist society. Would it not be the height of absurdity, indeed of impudence, to gauge the behavior of future generations by the very criteria we despise in our own time? Free men will not be greedy. One liberated community will not try to dominate another because it has a potential monopoly of copper. Computer experts will not try to enslave grease monkeys, and sentimental novels about pining, tubercular virgins will not be written. We can ask only one thing of the free men and women of the future. To forgive us that it took so long and that it was such a hard pull. Like Brecht, we can ask that they try not to think of us too harshly, that they give us their sympathy and understand that we lived in the depths of a social hell. But then, they will surely know what to think without our telling them. And that is it for this week. Once more I find myself amused by how closely the descriptions of the problems do mirror to our current lives, while also having such a different premise of what this all looks like, the fact that he would talk about filing cabinets is so funny. The idea that to have this huge bureaucratic machine still needs to be on paper and manually done to that extent is so different to how things work at this point. But the central premise of the fact that technology allows for significant leaps and advances in different directions, and the question comes down to, are we making people's lives easier, or are we increasing productive forces? And pretty clearly we're increasingly doing the latter. If you've ever seen any of those graphs that go around that show the ways in which productivity, as it is quantified, has massively gone up despite the fact that wages have conspicuously not, that for the most part compensation for workers is about the same, yet productivity has massively increased and continues to expect to rise exponentially, which uh, underscores the importance of this chapter as a whole in the ways in which that in the ways in which technology continues to serve the needs of capital more than it's actually assisting the workers themselves. Instead of 
the increased productive forces, meaning more time for workers and more freedom for workers to pursue other things, pursue the creative or artisanal style labor that could be more fulfilling. Instead, it simply means more is expected to be done endlessly. And that's precisely why things like the internet, which is a powerful tool for the ability of people to connect and share information across various different swaths of life across the globe. I don't know who you are or where you are, but you're listening to this and you are not sitting in my living room in Ireland, so there is a huge potential good for it. And in terms of workplaces, they've used it a lot to expect constant access to employees, the ability to check in at a moment's notice with people, whether it's an office worker or a shift worker who is being told at the very last minute that they have to come into work. All of this is used to create more demand and burden upon employees to plug the gaps so that with as little cost as possible, as much money as possible is being churned out of the productive machine. And likewise why phrases like quiet quitting need to be manufactured to make it sound like people doing the job that they're required on paper is somehow disloyal or (laughs) sneaky (laughs) or underhanded in some sense. When in reality, they are simply recognizing, oh, hey, the the status of this particular job does not require me to do any more than this much, so why would I? Which, uh, the reason why you would do more than that is because the productive forces benefit from people throwing themselves into, as much as possible, producing more and more, even when it is not strictly in their own interest even when it's not strictly in the individual worker's interest because they're not actually getting any tangible reward, especially as divorced as they are from the profit and the actual results of their efforts. I will have to look up whether Murray Bookchin wrote anything quite late in life as the internet sort of existed, not in the status it does now, but in the early days I'm curious to see what he had to say about it and even without it being the internet specifically, the increasingly digital structure of society and information, because, again, he was talking about filing cabinets when writing this section. We don't use those so much anymore. But that is going to do it for this week. Next time we will be starting a new chapter, and if you have any questions, comments, corrections, suggestions on the book itself or the stuff I've just been saying here too, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. Actually, a weird note I'll put in here is a good while back, someone recommended the someone recommended the book by Ursula K. Le Guin, The Dispossessed, as a good fiction story about anarchism and a society that was anarchist and what that practically looked like on the ground and some of the difficulties they faced in their society. And I will A, pass on that recommendation, that was really good, it's probably my favourite Le Guin book I have read so far, and I do think it's good to, even though it is fictional, see a world where the struggle is realized in a way that lets you think about day-to-day what people's lives look like in the society and how they face different things. Again, 
at speculation, obviously. And B, if anyone has any other books that they think are interesting in dealing with these things, that show the idea of a more anarchist society, that show a more distributed separate communes, or that show, generally speaking, societies that are more distributed into individual communities rather than globalist structures that we have today, feel free to email those in. Those are interesting. I, I'm always looking for recommendations on that stuff. But anyway, this show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts as well as going to patreon.com slash abnormalmapping to support the network as a whole and get lots of good bonus shows there too. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. And that's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.